so excited to have my next guest on the show, David Dassinger. He is a retired fire lieutenant with over 21 years as a leader in emergency services and Dr. Stacy Raymond. She's been practicing as a clinical psychologist in Connecticut for 22 years. David and Stacy are the host of the extremely popular First Responder Resilience podcast. Now, in this show, we cover important topics such as depression, addiction challenges for first responders, but the main takeaway is that if you are suffering, there is hope. Your wellness and recovery is waiting for you. You just need to take that first step. David Dassinger and Dr. Stacy Raymond, next on the CJ Evolution Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in to the CJ Evolution Podcast, a top show, top because of you, the listener and supporter. Thank you for tuning in. And for all the first responders out there, yes, that includes you, thank you for what you do. Very difficult time right now, but you are strong, you are resilient, and we love you. Keep up the fantastic work. What makes Shatterproof a very unique program is it's one of the only programs in the country that first responders can go to that is 100% all first responders. Everybody's in pretty bad shape when they get here. And then 30 days later, when you can see the transformation and the difference in people when they've had 30 days uh, of counseling, working with therapists, working with a psychiatrist, getting the neuro treatment, doing the breath therapy that's done here. The transformation that happens with the clients is really humbling to be able to work around and see because people are getting better here. And it just shows that there's a need for the first responder community to deal with behavioral health issues and take them seriously and offer treatment to people that may need help out there. They should be afforded the ability to come get help when they need help. It has gotten better, but we still have a long way to go. Thank you, Jimmy Keefe, for that inspiring and motivational message about FHE Health and our Shatterproof program. Jimmy works down at the Shatterproof campus. Thank you for what you do, my friend. If you are suffering or you know somebody who is, please have them contact FHE Health. They can contact me directly at 303-960-9819 or 844-650-1399. FHE Health, where hope becomes healing. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I'm very excited to have two guests on my show on the CJ Evolution podcast. David Dashinger, he's a retired fire lieutenant with over 21 years as a leader in emergency services, and Dr. Stacy Raymond. She has been practicing as a clinical psychologist in Ridgefield, Connecticut for over 22 years, and she works a lot. About half of her practice is dedicated to first responder wellness. Welcome to you both. Thank Patrick, you. it's great to be here. Well, I appreciate it, both of you, uh, for coming on the show and uh, making time and talking about health and wellness when it comes to our first responders. For those listeners out there who don't know who either of you are, <laughs> David, can we start with you and, and give us a little bit of your background? Sir, I gave a little bit of a snippet on you both, but can you dive a little bit deeper? Yeah, I uh, started as a volunteer. I mean, this is how 
crazy it was. We literally bought the house next to the firehouse. And I, <laughs> you know, I moved in thinking, is this going to be a lot of uh, yeah. noise, sirens, trucks coming and going all hours of the night? Um, I got invited to a barbecue. Okay, it's next door. Why not? And they said, well, come on down to a drill. And I went to a drill. Now, this is like the furthest thing, thing from my skill set, which I was uh, in the music business. So, you know, doing oh, wow. something like that was whole different universe, but I found myself getting fascinated with it and falling in love with it. So one thing led to another, became a member, became an officer. One day I worked with a paramedic who said, you know, you can get hired as a career firefighter and started taking tests and um, actually got hired at the first um, municipality that I tested at. And uh, from there, uh, we did quite a bit of EMS. So there is a whole, you know, piece of healthcare in there, sure. as well as the fire piece and small departments. So interesting because to say you were cross-trained is kind of an understatement, but you were cross-staffing all the time. So you would be in the middle of an EMS call and then start doing a fire-related skill or vice versa. Um, sometimes even switching apparatus in the middle of a call and everybody did everything. So uh, challenging job, uh, great job. And, uh, you know, it's kind of in retirement. I miss being on the job, but um, I've also been blessed to find a purpose after retirement. Now you are, you and both you and Stacy work um, on the a responder resilience podcast that you, mm -hmm. you both do yes. can you, along with another person. Can you, can you talk about mm -hmm. that? Yeah. I'll let Stacy talk about her. Oh, about Bonnie? Oh, yeah. Bo Come on, well, Steve. I'm sorry, Stacey. That's okay. So um, Bonnie and I actually met when uh, we were both part of a, uh, a group called Fairfield County Trauma Response Team. And um, Bonnie's now on the board and I'm, I'm a member. There's about two dozen of us that are therapists and we work with first responders. Bonnie has always had this idea of um, putting together a support group uh, and so she invited me to join her in it. And we started very small in uh, November of 2018. And it's grown to be, you know, at least uh, we, we sometimes have 20 people um, in the group. And that can be a combination of in, in person and on Zoom. Um, and so that's how we came to know each other. Mm -hmm. And then um, I gave a presentation through that group uh, at David's fire department. So in Ridgefield, Connecticut, and um, David, then he, I guess he was having this idea of doing, uh, as he was approaching retirement, uh, doing the Responder Resilience podcast. And so he reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I think, you know, I'd like to have you co-host it with me. And I said, uh, I think we should include Bonnie too, <laughs> yeah. right? Because I'm I actually, you know, really struggled with being in front of the camera and being recorded and all of that. And Bonnie is, I, I find to be much more uh, extroverted than I am. I'm introverted. So I said, hey, David, maybe, how about we invite Bonnie too? And he's like, that's a great idea. So, um, so now it's the three of us and we, you know, the three of us are the, um, David's the producer, right? So he's the brains behind the organization and Bonnie and I, Bonnie is a um, social worker and she's also an EMT. That's so. Awesome. Yeah, so she she understands it from both sides. Uh, so that's Bonnie. Um, so and I really quick, about... really quick. Yeah, talk about yourself a little bit, Stacey. And okay, what, so what I'm not a you first... your... Oh, go ahead. I'm not a first responder, um, but I grew up in the household with a first responder, mm -hmm. but also a military combat veteran. So my father 
uh, is a Marine and he's still alive. And um, he was a sniper in the Korean War and he doesn't talk about it. He's from that generation mm -hmm. where, um, you know, they, unless, unless you're another combat vet, I don't think he, he uh, will have a conversation about it. Yeah. Um, and he was also a police officer and went on to become toward the end of his uh, police career, a dispatcher. And uh, so I, you know, my dad has some post-traumatic stress. I know that. And, you know, it made him hyper vigilant and very protective. Um, so I grew up in, you know, with somebody that has post-traumatic stress. And so I have to say, I'm pretty comfortable around someone that, that yeah. has that. Um, and so that's kind of the beginning of my training right there, you yeah. know, to work with first responders. So here I am at this point <laughs> in my career working with veterans, you know, combat veterans, uh, mainly, and, uh, and also first responders and mostly police too. So it's just, it's interesting how that happened. And, uh, and thank you both for your service, David and Stacy. Thank you for your clinical work and David, thank you for service in the, in the fire service. What, let me ask you this, Stacey. I mean, what do you see, uh, and maybe this is too broad of a question, but, but I'll ask anyway, what are some of the common themes that you see when it comes to treating first responders? And I just don't mean cops, obviously fire, EMS, corrections, dispatchers. Yeah. I mean, what are some of the, the common themes that you, that you're hearing about, if you're willing to share? Well, it's pretty broad in that yeah. you know, most of them, if they have symptoms, they wait too long to get help, mm -hmm. right? And it's because they're in service for others, right? They Many of them have character traits of the rescuer or the warrior, right? So mm -hmm. they are not really paying attention to their own struggle emotionally. And um, so that's one common theme. Uh, they have a hard time asking for help and going to get help. Part of it is the stigma of uh, being seen as weak. And uh, I'm, I, you know, why would I need help? I'm the helper. You sure. know, if there's yeah. an emergency, then I'm there for everybody else to, you know, to help them and get them where they need to go and to reinstitute control into a chaotic situation. Um, so they think about themselves last. Um, so what do I notice clinically? Clinically, there is, um, you know, hyper vigilance, hyper startle. Um, some, a lot of them are adrenaline junkies, you know, like really wanting, you know, some of them want to do extra shifts and don't know how mm -hmm. to be away from work. They don't know how to come down from um, all of the excitement of, of work. So I, I see that a lot. They don't know how to relax. So yeah, um, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. And, and from my, you know, and, and given in my experience, I mean, that's just how, like, from my experience, I mean, that's how I was programmed. I mean, I was in the military and then, you know, that's how I was trained. You just push everything aside and things like that. You, you push it down until, you know, it's going to manifest in other ways. David, from the fire service perspective, I mean, you, you I think we're all relatively the same ages. I mean, do you, do you, is there anything or was there anything when you were going through to help mitigate, you know, some of the stress and, and, and pressure that, you know, firefighters felt? And do you think they're getting any better with this? Well, it's a 
very pertinent question. And I think one of my frustrations as I became promoted was that we were never trained or given any easy resources when there mm -hmm. was a problem, not only for us personally, but somebody that was in our supervision. And um, on the flip side, as we talk to more people on our podcast, we're seeing more and more that there is good movement in terms of people being willing to talk about mental health issues, being willing to seek treatment, um, available resources for substance abuse, for suicide, whether that be a hotline or a, a inpatient or even at home, a rehabilitation program. And, um, and if just the fact that the Fairfield County trauma response team makes these visits to police and fire stations. Uh, I'm not sure. Do you guys do EMS visits like, uh, I haven't, but Bonnie has definitely. And she's the person to do it because she's an EMT, right? You know? So. so they're they're making this outreach, which is making firefighters, police and EMS personnel aware that the trauma team exists, that they're there for a critical incident, but they're also there as clinicians and therapists when an individual needs that kind of help. Now, for me personally, to actually meet Stacy or see her speak in my department was huge because all I knew before that was EAP. You know, if you have a problem, sure. EAP. Um, I didn't know that there was trauma-informed psychotherapists out there. And now Stacy's making a presentation. I found that I could, you know, feel comfortable going up and speaking to her and then going to attend her peer support group that she runs with Bonnie. Just having that connection um, to me was a giant leap in terms of mental health and being able to know that there's somebody out there that I could talk to if I needed or if I had a, a guy in my shift who needed mm -hmm. help that I could refer to. And yeah. so that's, you know, I think we're on the leading edge of a wave where um, mental health stigma and um, ability to, to address it is changing in a positive way. And I, and I think a, a lot of it is a cultural thing, David, and, mm -hmm. and Stacey, you probably know this too. I mean, the culture on what I'm talking about is within the organization. Every organization has kind of different cultures, but, but I think from, from a law enforcement perspective, I talk to a lot of cops where they often complain that, you know, they're getting lip service from command staff, mm -hmm. you know, and I was command staff when I retired. I mean, that they're just getting the lip service. Yeah, 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 yeah. We care, we care, we care. And then they're doing something else, which is shocking to me because your, your human capital is the most important asset you have. Mm -hmm. But the flip side of that is we're not getting, you both know, we're not getting people flocking to the first responder services anymore. Maybe fire is a little different, but definitely not law enforcement. Mm -hmm. People are not getting into these pro professions like they used to in the past. And that's concerning. So why aren't we taking better care of the people we have? I'm not talking about disciplinary issues and stuff like that. I'm talking about, you know, health and wellness, mental health and wellness. I was fortunate to work in an organization that really put that on the forefront. But I know there's mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. of organizations, departments that don't do that. Well, they do the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I, go ahead, go ahead Stacey, because I, I was going to uh, point out that you've been involved with uh, at least one department that's talking about having a, you know, mental health um, day on a regular basis. So um, go ahead, launch into that. Yeah. So I, are you re are you referring to um, having a, a mental wellness checkup or kind of like an interview is that what you're talking about mm -hmm. yeah so there's a department that i work with and i find this to be they came up with it i didn't even mention it to them but one of their peer support uh members of a fire department 
said, um, you know, just like we have to have an annual physical for our physical health, shouldn't we sit with a mental health provider and just have a kind of a checkup from the neck up? Um, and, and I said, that's a great idea. You know, I don't know what you're going to call it. You'll have to be careful with what yeah. you call it, because of course, there's going to be a lot of resistance because it's new and uh, it might be a threat, but um you know, I don't know if they're going to make it mandatory or optional. Um, but my sense of it is with the right um, therapists doing those interviews, I'm just going to call it an interview. Yeah, absolutely. Have it have it be an opportunity, um, you know, to stress the importance of their emotional well-being, their cognitive well-being and even spiritual well-being, not just your physical well-being. Is there anything that you know, you want to talk to me about that. You have any questions about yourself, any concerns about yourself. And I think that, you know, actually most people that sit down with a therapist that is culture informed, meaning you're, they're familiar with uh, police, fire, EMS culture, that they will uh, like the opportunity. Um, and then there will be those that resist and then word will get out like, hey, that wasn't so bad. In fact, I learned something about myself. And, you know, I actually learned like a stress management technique when I was talking to this person, this mental health person, this yeah. shrink. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of what the, you know, or the wizard, right? That's what the, um, Who's the, the military, wizard? the wizard. Um, and I don't care what they call me or my colleagues, but I think, you know, it's cutting edge. I'm all for it. Um, I absolutely understand there's going to be pushback resistance. There are going to be those individuals that say, no, no, I'm not, not sitting with you. I don't yeah. want to talk to you. Well, but you made, you made a good point about trust and getting people to come forward. You, you the, the one thing that you, you said it at the beginning, Stacey, you're from a military family, you yeah. know, you weren't in the military, but at least you were exposed to that. So you get it. I mean, you know, you know, you know, trauma and you know what vets walk through and, and first responders too. Yeah. So my point is, is that most first responders and I, well, I shouldn't, I'm just speaking for myself. I shouldn't speak mm -hmm. for everybody mm -hmm. else. I wanted to speak. I wanted to open up to another first responder. I wanted to open up oh. to oh. somebody, man or woman who has walked the, the, in my shoes, mm -hmm. because I think that breeds more trust. I'm not saying, I'm not, and this isn't a dig for private clinicians out there who have never been in the military or first responder field. I'm just saying that I, I think that breeds a little bit more trust, David. I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, that's probably exactly what the peer support model is based on. Yeah. And that's why it's so successful is that is the first line of resource and help when somebody's having a problem is talk to somebody who's a peer, whether they're you know, somebody you work with or a neighboring department, or in some cases it could be uh, on a national, you know, call line, like uh, cop line. Um, that's, you know, that's our comfort zone, right? That's the highest level of trust we're going to have with somebody sharing is somebody who's walking in our shoes, basically. And then sometimes it's on recommendation. In my case, it was meeting Stacy, hearing her present. You can start to develop trust with clinicians who are trauma and formed and culturally competent. Um, and if it's a good match, if the chemistry is good and you feel like, you know, that's working for you, then maybe therapy, EMDR is, you know, is going to be the next step in that evolution. Um, but trust is, is huge. And, um, you know, that's something that's a commodity that once it's, um, you know, it's kind of ruined, there's no recovering from it. So yeah. you have to be very careful. Yeah. I mean, and we, we have come a long, long way. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think, but I, but I think that there's, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, we still have a long way to go and I don't even think there's an end game. It's just constantly improving, yeah. you know, and, and building upon what we have, because I just go back to, you know, the fact that we're, we're not, you know, people are leaving, you know, mm-hmm. in droves, the attrition rates are through the roof and it's hard to get good quality people to replenish those ranks. Right. Right. And so on the good note, from what I hear speaking to different people in the podcast, now mental health is starting to become more uh, addressed more thoroughly in the academy level, you know, the recruit level. And some departments are, um, like Stacy's talking about, they're incorporating mental health into like a regular checkup or some sort of, you know, interaction with a clinician. Some of the critical incident and stress debriefing is now being conducted in a more, uh, inclusive way where, um, you know, people are actually able to process some of the trauma that they may have experienced on a scene without being judged or criticized. And so we're taking baby steps, but I think overall, um, you know, unless my view of this is really skewed, because I'm only talking to the people that are part of the, you know, the solution to all these uh, issues we're talking about, I really feel hopeful that um, that part's moving in a good direction. As far as the attrition and retention, um, so many issues involved there, right? It's like, you know, the amount of workload that responders are taking on because of the open spots. And maybe it's, uh, you know, lack of support from yeah. the public, lack of support from command staff. Um, and maybe it's just, you know, I can make this same amount of money working at a big box store without all the liability and the headache <laughs> yeah. and the, you know, responsibility. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I and, you know, you 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 mentioned, and we we both agree. And Stacy, I don't know, Stacy had to step out, but yeah, I think um, she um she says she's kind of logging in now. So um. okay, <laughs> but you know, it's it almost seems like we're in a a mode now where we're and I'm using I'm going to use an analogy where we're 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 constantly plucking people out of the water, uh, you know, when they need to get out of the water. But we should be upstream and helping people before they even fall into the water. So right. my point in that is, um. Like in the police, you know, in law enforcement, I, I was a big advocate of getting into the academies mm-hmm. and doing more and more on the front end as far as equipping. Not that you're going to cure everything, you're going to solve all the problems, but at least doing more training and more uh, awareness training on the front end during a mm-hmm. police academy uh, th- than just devoting maybe an hour on it, you know. Yeah. Um, and I understand what requirements from the state and post and you got to get all these hours. So I don't know what the fire, I mean, you have to go through academies, right? So I don't know what your thought is on that stuff. Yeah, there was um, very little devoted to that. I think also in EMS training, very little devoted to personal, you know, like self-care having to do with mental health and um, emotional health. So where are we going with it? I think it's again, baby, taking baby steps, um, but I'm talking to some people who are, saying that it's being included in the curriculum early in people's careers. So that's a good thing. But more importantly, like you said, Patrick, we got to train on so many things. Like if you're a fire EMS department, it's hard enough to just keep up with all your EMS training requirements and recertifications, let alone your fire re- you know, training and certifications. And then if you pile on top of that, well, now we have to do mental health you know, training and wellness yeah. and peer support and whatever else is included in that package. Um, that's a lot. And so I think the, the priorities have to be shifted, you know, well, like, if, yeah, 
Well, like with the fire guys, you have to decide what movie you're going to watch that night and what kind of. <laughs> just, yeah, right. I had but, to put uh, in the fire, the fire, fire <laughs> dig. It used to crack me up when, you know, we used to go over to the firehouse, you know, in, in the city I worked in. Man, they had all this stuff. They had, you know, big, huge screen TVs. Recliners, yeah. The recliners. <laughs> and I'm like, what the what the heck? We don't, we don't get anything. But you got, you know, I like the, 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 the fight, you know, where there, you know, you, you, you go out, you go to a call, you run into a call and then you come back and you decompress, you know, whereas cops, and I'm not saying we're better. It's just that, that hyper, you, you said it, Stacey, the being, you know, the hyper vigilance, you know, it's always mm -hmm. there. I'm not saying fire isn't there either, but for law enforcement, it's, it's always there, you know, and it's, you, how do you turn right. it off? And I find with law enforcement, there's the isolation, you know, after a bad call, you know, if you're not discharged home, it has to be bad enough. Uh, you're back in the cruiser, you're on to the that's, next uh, call. That's how Whereas, it was when I was young. Yeah. Right. And then, uh, you know, Bonnie has explained to us that uh, with EMS, you always have a partner, you know, you, there's always uh, another uh, paramedic or EMT in the ambulance with you. And you can always talk about the call afterward and then fire. They you know, go back to the fire department and, you know, take care of their apparatus and uh, maybe Wash if they it. need to get changed. Well, uh, but then they have a, they might have a meal together yeah. and uh, there's an opportunity to, if not talk about it, but at least blow off some steam and yeah. be with other people. Right. And, and, and that's where the gallows humor kind of comes in and people decompress that way. It's a very healthy way to do that. So there's, there's not the aloneness, like healing comes in connection. It just, yeah. it comes in connection. Isolation is the worst thing after you've been through trauma, isolation, extended isolation is um, it, it's really when your, your mind goes off sure. into the weeds. Yeah. Right. And uh, you keep seeing it, you keep hearing it. Uh, and they start wondering, why am I having this problem? What's wrong with me? You know, and I can just see how police are, are so much more plagued with that because of the isolation than fire and EMS. So, yeah, I mean, you make a good point. I never really thought about it, but you know, I, most apartments out there uh, are solo cars. I mean, they're, 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 you know, they have people they show up on calls with other cops, but I, I was a solo car. I didn't have a partner with me or anything, unless you're like a big agency like LAPD or Chicago, they, they ride two main cars, but you're right. I mean, not that you can't go back to the PD and talk about it, but you made it, made a really good point, you know, that it's, you're always with a crew, like in the fire crew and mm -hmm. EMS, whereas yeah. law enforcement, a lot of times are, okay, you do a call and you're back in your patrol car, you're off alone. Mm -hmm. So you made a, made a really good point. And I was telling, you know, Dave, before we started that, you know, I, I suffered, you know, I ended up in treatment because mm -hmm. as you, you mentioned like isolation. I thought it was just something I needed to do. You know, I, I used to get off, didn't talk about anything, just go isolate for about an hour, mm -hmm. but, it, but it's not healthy, obviously, you know, you, you can't, you know, keep isolating and isolating because obviously that's not healthy, but trying mm -hmm. to convey that to people, you both know, try to convey that to a first responder that that's not healthy and getting them to take steps to, to kind of break that cycle is another thing. Right. And how right. do you do and that in police work? Like, you know, just by, uh, by design, since you're say uh, in a single person car, you know, how do you build in some social interaction where maybe a couple of officers can speak after a call to diffuse, decompress, mm -hmm. um, you know, that, mm -hmm. what does it take to kind of build that into the, into the operation? Yeah. 
And I think that's where peer support comes into play, right? I mean, not everybody needs a therapist or a chaplain, right? They, they, if they really just had another officer, um, hopefully one that has been on a similar call that they can talk to and run it past them. Hey, have you ever, you know, been first on scene for a Sid's death? Cause that just happened yeah. to me. And I, I just can't think straight right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, and, and it's, I, that's where peer support can be so helpful because first responders would so much rather talk to one of their own, you know, but if you, if it goes, if the call was bad enough or, um, there's been a series of calls or it's the, you know, the person is to the point where their bucket is full or their closet is full, then maybe they, you know, should go and talk to a professional to, to get help with that. Yeah, because like you said, I mean, there's only so much. We're not designed, as humans, we're not designed to see the trauma that we see on a yeah. daily basis. I mean, you know, pe people, you know, citizens, I mean, they might experience it. I'm not trying to mitigate it or make it sound worse than it is. I mean, they got a handful of bad things they have to go through throughout their lifetime. First responders, I mean, and this is what they signed up to do. They're seeing it every day. So it's 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 not something that we can sustain you know, for, for the long term, at least I could. Yeah. And by, I think by culture and by training, we're kind of maybe not even verbally taught, but somehow instinctively taught that, you know, you should just show up for that call, take care of the call yeah, and up. just be, be ready for the next one and do that call and get through that one and get ready okay. for the next one. And instinctively, I mean, that's how I operated. I never really dreamed that I needed to decompress, diffuse, or, you know, even talk to somebody uh, until I was having, you know, kind of loops in my mind of like a call that didn't go, you know, the way I thought it was supposed to go. And now I'm laying awake at night, not being able to sleep with that same call playing over and over. Like, what could I have done different? Did I did this, do this right? Did, you know, why did this not go the way I thought it was? And those are the things that, um, you know, I guess they're warning signs, right? That this is, you know, we need to seek help. We need to do something right. and uh, be aware. <laughs> It's your mind trying to make sense of it and to resolve it. And that's why you keep seeing it. That's why you keep thinking about it. It's your, your psyche is delivering it up for a rerun here. Like this, you still need to work on this because this is still fresh. I mean, when, when you go through a traumatic call or call that didn't go the way you had hoped, you know, uh, usually there's a fight or flight response, right? There's an adrenaline dump, cortisol kind of floods the brain. And any of the memories or any of the uh, visual, auditory, maybe, you know, olfactory experiences that, that are paired with that call, they are filed, you know, in fragmented form. They're not filed in the cortex. They're kind of under the command of the limbic system. Going back to work is a trigger, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that, that material is not processed thoroughly. And, um, so therapy can help continue the processing of it, you know, if a person yeah. does feel particularly stuck. So that's why you keep seeing things or keep hearing the screaming or you keep smelling the, you know, if it's a fire call, it usually can, it can be, you know, it could be human flesh. It could be, you know, just the mm -hmm. toxic materials, you know, um, combat vets will talk about, you know, the, the blood on their hands. It's very slippery because mm -hmm. they've, they had a buddy that was shot maybe killed and and they were tending to him yeah yeah you know so and those things linger now you mentioned stacy before about emdr i know what it is i've been through emdr 
Can you explain to the listener what EMDR is and what the benefits of doing EMDR are? Again, I've went through it. Um, I think right. in, I mean, it's hard to describe, isn't it? It's yeah, hard it's very to, hard to it's hard describe. To, first off, the name is, you know, I think uh, is a turnoff for people. So, you know, I don't mean to insult uh, Francine Shapiro, um, <laughs> who invent, who came up with it. She named it that, but that was the best name that she could come up with at the time because it was believed that eye movements was the only way to do EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So. Uh, in the mid eighties, um, she, she discovered it because she was bothered by something. She went for a, a walk outside and her eyes scanned the horizon, mm-hmm. right? She just kind of found that soothing. And so she just kept doing that, kept doing that. And then she found she really wasn't that bothered by that memory anymore. And so she took it from there and she played around with, um, you know, having, first like her graduate graduate students fellow graduate students she was in a psychology program out in California and so she would have them um she would try it out with them think of something that tell me something that bothers you still bothers you even though it happened a while ago and uh think about it and then she didn't know how fast to do this she didn't know how long to do this but that's kind of how it originated yeah, it evolved then, to there yeah and she tested it with um with veterans and found that it helped them with their symptoms, you know, their nightmares were not, um, they weren't happening as frequently. And, um, you know, their, their hypervigilance, hyperstartle was starting to change and they weren't haunted by intrusive images anymore. And so she, for her dissertation, she did, she called, she had to call it something and she came up with an eight phase protocol. So she called it EMDR. And then it was discovered after that, um, and I'm, I don't know how they switched over to tapping, but my guess is maybe some people got dizzy, uh, yeah. or some people got a headache from the eye movements. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, uh, you can, as the, cl- as the clinician, you can tap someone's knees sitting across. From that's them. what I, that's what they were doing. To right. So, me. and that, that works. Um, yeah. a lot of clinicians have buzzers that they hold in their hands and they buzz left and right. And so, um, and then, you know, you can, you, the clinician could be sitting in front of you doing eye movements or they have mm-hmm. a light bar, an LED light bar. Some um, clinicians have a headset where it tones. So you have binaural, um, bilateral stimulation. Um, the theory behind it initially was that, uh, you know, when we sleep at night and we dream, that's when we are trying to digest or heal anything that happened during the day or the week that is unsettling to us, either it's confusing, it's new, or it's bothersome, we'll, we'll dream about it. If it's really bothersome, we'll have a nightmare about it. And a nightmare is a failed dream. We wake up from it and the healing hasn't happened. It hasn't been processed. So rapid eye movement, sleep, our eyes go back and forth very quickly during that. And so that was Francine Shapiro's first idea or theory. Yeah. As to why it works and so hey why not let's do this during the wake state have somebody yeah. think of something that still bothers them how do you know it still bothers you well you have to be in your body you can't be numb and you can't be floating you know being dissociated and you go back to the memory and it it just makes you tense or it you know makes you sad or angry or what just it gives you some disturbing feeling and um you know we 
we can ask the person to focus on that. And then I mean, this, this I'm simplifying it. There is a process, sure. you know, you do a, an interview with the, you do a history, you yeah. make sure that they're ready for EMDR. You don't just jump in and do EMDR. And there's a series of questions to find, okay, you know, what, what's going to be that first memory that we work on. Um, and then there's questions after that. Um, so her idea was let's just have the person focus on an unsettling memory and then we'll do kind of rapid eye movement during the wake state and it's not hypnosis you know the client is fully aware they're not in a trance or anything they know exactly what's going on and what we tend to find is that it's about three times faster than talk therapy and i find that it goes a lot deeper than talk therapy in that sometimes you know there's like a full body shock that happens whether like let's say a car accident um or a rape Uh, And talking about it is not going to kind of clear that from your nervous system. It's not going to clear it out of your body, but there's, you know, EMDR is considered a bottom up therapy, Mm -hmm. you know, where we focus on the body. What do you feel in your body? Where is that emotion rated on a scale of one to 10? And then what's the negative belief that you have about yourself? And, you know, we process it from there. Talk therapy is considered a top down approach to healing. Sure. Right. But yeah. if you think about it, trauma is not lodged in the cortex. So talking about it is kind of a backwards way of getting to it, in yeah. my opinion. Trauma yeah, it, is lodged in the in the limbic system. That's amazing how thank you for that explanation, sure. uh, doctor. Um, it's amazing like when Dave and I were talking a little bit about this, uh, you know, when when he and I got on this, I mean we didn't have we didn't talk about things like mindfulness and and em we didn't we didn't know any of this stuff you know at least i didn't but it's amazing what we're doing and what we're discovering now you know that we can use is you know for different treatment modalities like emdr and rrt when i went through treatment i I went through emdr rrt i did neuroscans i did neurostimulation on my brain all these now they're talking you both probably know this now they're we're we're learning and you know because you're a clinician uh, doctor, I mean, they're treating certain patients with ketamine hmm. and other things. Yeah. And then, I mean, stuff like I was like, you know, a couple of years ago, I'd be arresting people for this stuff. And now, now we're using it. Well, I'm not treating people with <laughs> low dose. Ket- it's, it's low dose ketamine. Well, that's too. what I mean. It's, but, but the point is, yeah. is now we're, as, as we progress and we evolve, <clears throat> we're figuring out that, look, there's some medicinal and there's some clinical. Right. With psilocybin. Right? Yeah, mushrooms. mushrooms and also MDMA, which is the um, non-street version of uh, ecstasy. Yeah. Yep. But, you know, Dave and I were talking about mindfulness, right? Right, Dave? And, and meditation. And I made the joke with, with with Dave, you know, a couple of years ago or maybe a handful of years ago, I would have been laughing if somebody said, why don't you try meditation? I was like, what? <laughs> right. And that's, no, that's, no, no, you know, no, no. that's what we were, we were talking about earlier is that. <laughs> The word meditation almost has this, you know, connotation of, uh, you know, somebody in yoga pants sitting cross-legged in front of a waterfall and, uh, right. you know, in a yeah. lotus position, all this stuff. And, yeah. you know, and, and you have to be doing it for 20 minutes at a time or a half hour and no first longer. responder. Yeah. Longer. No yeah. first responder is going to be able to pull over the police car next to a waterfall and put on the yoga pants. I mean, <laughs> it's nuts, right? And even if you could do it at the firehouse, nobody's going to. I mean, maybe somebody does someplace, but most people I know would never, you know, say, I'm going in the back room to meditate, call me in 20 minutes. So the, 
the good thing is that, um, you know, in some of our work with meditation, um, which is sort of a side thing from everything else I'm doing, um, we've adapted a certain kind of meditation specifically for first responders that can be used in the middle of a stressful situation, mm -hmm. even mm. while responding. Like, you know, I've used some of them in the fire engine responding to a call. And so there's a whole, you know, whole opportunity there to bring whatever you want to call it, meditation, mindfulness, present moment awareness, um, de-stressing, calming techniques to first responders so they can do their job better, so they can make better mm -hmm. decisions. Because mm -hmm. let's face it, when, you know, when the shit's hitting the fan, you got to, you know, get whatever ever information you can and have to make an informed decision that could be life or death, or at least have huge consequences. Why not, you know, take advantage of every tool that you can to make sure you're able to be clear and present to make that mm -hmm. decision. Right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's the more tools we have, the better off we're going to be. And uh, I think like we were talking about, Dave, uh, there's still a long way to go, but I, I think it just amazes me still how much we have now than when you and I did it, mm -hmm. you know, when we and first got in. for one person doesn't always work for exactly. someone else, right? So it's finding what works for you, right? Every once in a while, I encounter somebody who says, you know, this EMDR, it doesn't really, I feel the same. I don't, you know, it's like one in a hundred uh, EMDR is not effective for, but there are other, you know, ways that a person can calm their nervous system down. The one thing that really worked for me, uh, Stacy, and, and you both probably know this, I mean, there's neurostimulation. I mean, they, where they map your brain, they do this down at where I went through treatment, the company I work for now, mm -hmm. they map my brain and they said, all right, this is what you're, this is what you're suffering from. I mean, it's run by clinicians and experts and all this. Is those it people. neurofeedback? Is that what well, you're it's neurofeedback about? and neurostimulation. Yeah. Oh, so okay. it's, it's actually where they scan your brain, it's cutting yeah. edge stuff mm -hmm. and they can say, all right, you know, Pat, you're, you're suffering from depression, isolation. And then through a series of neurostimulation treatments where they actually little micro amps of stimulation in those areas of the brain. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And right, then it right. helps right. regenerate that part of the brain that was damaged. Yes. Now the key to that, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's amazing stuff. I did 18 sessions of that. Um, but the key is that you have to, you know, you can't fall back into, you shouldn't fall back into your addictive behaviors and stuff like that, right. or you lose that, obviously. Of course. But they, right. you know, they, they, it really is amazing treatment. So that was huge when I went through that. It was like a light switch one day. It was like, oh my God. I mean, it was coupled with all the other different treatment I was doing. Right, right. Uh, but, Sometimes uh, you need to try a couple different things yeah. in combination, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's also uh, something called TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. So that's what makes me think of like what you were talking about, Patrick. That sounds or, like electric shock therapy. What no, you're it's not. About. It's um, <laughs> it's actually for the treatment resistant depression. Those those patients that have been tried on numerous oh, okay. um, different antidepressants and they you know, the side effects are just overwhelming uh, or they just don't get any relief or both. Yeah. Um, TMS is an option where it's two magnets really it's and there's no shocks or electricity or anything it's just a very two powerful magnets and what it does is it stimulates there's two particular areas in the brain that uh, one is overly active and the other one is un, is inactive or less active in depression and so one magnet kind of stimulates that area and this other one is oh, going to wow. decrease the performance of that area and so people end up feeling less depressed and less anxious you know that 
takes, you know, it's like a six week program. Yeah, I was going to say it's so you have to build up to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, but that's another treatment, right? If somebody doesn't want to do talk therapy and they're they have a depression that they just can't shake and they've tried medication, that's another option. But um, EMDR, as far as like a face to face therapy, um, first responders and veterans really like it because you know, they don't have to talk that much. It's really about finding memories that still bother you and you go to the worst part of it. And then we, we do EMDR, you know, and yeah. then they feel better. Um, so that's what I like about it because it, it's, it's so efficient and it's effective. So what are some tips? I mean, it's Dave and I were talking again, Stacey, before you got on about, um, you know, the hardest thing and what, with what I do is, you know, just getting that first responder to, to, make that call or, you know, to when I'm talking oh. to him to, yeah. to, all right, you know, I'm going to help you any way I can. Let, let's, let's get you into some treatment. And that's the hardest thing. I mean, so what, what are some tips for both of you tips and suggestions for like the listener who, who might be suffering and they might know somebody who's suffering just to kind of make that call. If you know what I mean? I mean, well, just, I just, think the fact Patrick that you've done EMDR and you're in a retired police officer. And also, did you say you were in the military as well? I was in the military. Yeah. Yeah. So that's going to be far more effective and motivating for, you know, another veteran or another first responder is to hear that you got, you received help. It worked for you, you know, and mm -hmm. David, the same thing, you know, uh, when I, as a clinician, and I'm not a first responder, I get up in front of a group, I think sometimes people are like, ah, oh, this is a lecture, and they start having flashbacks to high school, or maybe college or whatever, and, and sort of like, wah, 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 you know? Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown, Peanut. yeah, and so, and, and I think people just, and not to, to judge them, but they just kind of naturally lose interest or kind of tune out, but when the trauma, the trauma response team that I'm a member of, we when we make a presentation, we have a first responder there with us. And let me tell you, that's the one that they're listening to. And mm -hmm. it's a first responder who had the guts to get treatment. And they're saying, you know, this is how bad I was, you know, before treatment, you know, I was drinking, I, my wife and I weren't talking. I was depressed. I hated my job. And then I went for treatment. Here's the, the treatment that I went to and they describe it now. And they talk about themselves now and, and that their symptoms have been relieved. That is the, is yeah. an effective motivator. Yeah, so, I, I would agree. And, and, you know, it, it does help. And I tell people too, um, and I, I, I try not to sound curt when I tell them this, but you know, and I, and, and I use oh so many words, not these exact words, but I, I paraphrase by saying, look, uh, nobody is going to come and save you. Nobody's going to swoop in and say, you have to learn how to save yourself. The one of the best things I learned in treatment was I had to be extremely selfish, not narcissistic or anything like that, but extremely selfish when it came to my self-care. You know, and I think that's a problem with a lot of people, not just with first responders or so a lot of people are so used to giving and taking care of people. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But they neglect but, themselves. You know, you can't give anymore if you're you empty. Can't, you, yeah, you, you, you can't give anymore. And like no. Dave and I were talking like with first responders. I mean, it's you, you, you know, 
and, and Dave, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, you go to a critical incident. Okay, bam, 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 and it's accumulate uh, accumulation of that throughout the years where you can't you can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. I know that's how I felt. I was burned out. I you also daily. can't be a good family member either. No, exactly. You can't have it both so ways. You end up you, taking it home, and you yeah. end up hurting your family yeah, you, in some way. But the listener out there who's listening, oh yeah, I'm a great cop and great fire. Hey, good for you. Yeah. You know, I'm signing up for all this OT. Okay, what's the other end look like? What's the flip side yeah. of that coin look like? <laughs> Does right. your wife talk to you? You can't, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> right. I mean, it's right. a price. There's a price to doing something like that, right? To doing this job, there's a cost and a price. If we do it long enough, if we do it, you know, without getting help when we need help, if we do it, you know, with getting too deep into mental health issues and not resolving them or addressing them. And, um, you know, we have to always remember that there's a price not only that we can pay, but also our families, our loved oh, ones, right? Yeah. And yeah. that's that's like, to me, the number one reason to be proactive with mental health. Mm-hmm. Leader, leadership needs to be proactive for their members. And then we all have to be our own advocates at a certain point. Um, maybe, you know, the problem is sometimes knowing when you need that help. You know, it sounds like many people get to the point of like, extreme crisis before they That's seek help. That's usually how it is. Yeah, yeah. When someone calls me, I need, you know, a first responder, if they call me, I need to see them immediately because mm-hmm. I can only imagine how what bad shape they're in, you know, could, because a lot of them hesitate to make that phone call and they, they get to the point where I can't take it anymore. I don't want to go to work anymore, you know, so Bonnie and I may, and, and the other um, therapists on the trauma response team, we know we make a point of seeing them immediately. Yeah. And I saw a statistic and you probably see a bunch of statistics, both of you, but about 40% of first responders, again, fire EMS and under the, all under that umbrella Mm -hmm. suffer from mental health challenges, addiction challenges, or both. Mm -hmm. And that's the number we know about. Sure. So imagine the number, I imagine the numbers much, much higher than that. There's a lot of functional alcoholics out there. There are a lot of uh, first responders that have, that would actually meet the criteria for post-traumatic stress. I have to say disorder because that's how it's listed in the diagnostic manuals that we like, like to say I, I don't like traumatic stress injury is more yes like it exactly or brain, illness or something but, like but they're that. not gonna it's not gonna change anytime soon but anyway there's a lot of uh first responders that are they go to work and they have post-traumatic stress they they have it and they meet the criteria for it but they still function you know yeah and then they they I know one of the problems I dealt with, and I don't know, Dave, if you dealt with with this when you left the fire service, is I was when I retired, I didn't think it would be, I didn't think it would get to me as much as it did, but I went through an identity crisis. Oh, it's it's. Huge. I, I was and, like, who who the hell am I anymore? I, I'm right. not a cop anymore. I'm out of the loop. I'm not. You yeah. know, I mean, it's not that adrenaline dump I'm getting all all, all the time, but um, yeah, I it's, mean, I went through that. It's a huge change, in in uh, Patrick, I mean, it's so big that. We're going to be devoting a two-part series to that in our podcast to talking about retirement. Yeah. Um, I've delivered um, a lecture to fire departments with the Tr- Fairfield County Trauma mm-hmm. Response Team talking about retirement. Uh, and the more I researched it, the more I realized pieces to it that I wasn't even aware of. Now, I had my own journey, my own struggles sure. with it. I still struggle with it sometimes. But there was, you know, mm-hmm. so much more to it. There's the financial piece, you know, the mental health, physical wellness. A lot of these things, just like mental health, we're talking about when you're on the job, 
we can kind of stack the deck or be proactive before we retire so that we can move into retirement, you know, as healthy as possible with the, mm -hmm. kind of like the best support system possible. And, you know, we can start that process, you know, years out from our actual plan to retire. Maybe yeah. it should start when, you know, people are at the academy and in, in recruit uh, stage uh, to, to set the stage, to plant the seeds, you know, take care of, you know, family stuff, take care of state planning, take care of your, you know, your long-term health needs, take care of your mm. mental health um, across the span of a 20, 25, 30-year career. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're slowly moving in that direction. These conversations like we're having right now, I think are going to, you know, be a part of that. Yeah. And, and the reality is we're, most of us are living longer. I mean, we're living longer if we take care of ourselves. And just because you retire from law enforcement or the fire service or you EMS. You have a whole other career. Yeah, you, you have a whole other career. Right. You so, know, and I, what I wanted to add is, you know, part of the struggle and, and uh, you know, when we do this uh, podcast on retirement, we'll talk more about it. But the um, for, for police and fire, I don't know what the statistics are for EMS, but um, that first year out uh, is one of the most difficult and the suicide rate for retirees for both um, for police and fire is highest in, mm -hmm. in that first year out. So we need to look at that and, and, you know, we need to, you know, to David's point, address it way sooner than, than it's, it gets talked about. Yeah. Because I like what, for my experience, you know, I, I just went through an identity crisis and, and, you know, and there was some other stuff going on, but you know, you're no longer in that mode, at least I wasn't, you know, where you're, you know, it's that, you know, getting in the uniform on and doing this and doing that and doing structure, that. I, lack I didn't have structure. Yeah. Lack of structure. Now it's like, what do I do? What do I do? How about lack of being needed? Yeah. Lack of, that's a good one. Lack of being needed, wanted, you know, um, feeling like you're making a difference. Yeah. Purpose. Yes. You know, yeah. You're, Purpose. You're no, long, no longer part of that team. And, um, you know, there's a certain amount of pride, I think, and even uh, I'll go so far as to say ego in being a first responder, cop, firefighter, mm -hmm. paramedic, EMT, yeah. dispatcher. I mean, that is, you know, in some ways, it's, as we say, the greatest job in the world. And there's a reason we say that is because, you know, you are in this like, unbelievable position to, you know, be part of a team of people that is going out there and dealing with adversity oh, with the with the tools yeah. to solve people's problems or at least help to solve their yeah. problems right um we want greater level of being of service really mm -hmm. than that where there's can always you know usually or often be be a positive outcome mm -hmm. um and so to set that aside one day you know you're not going to work anymore um you know you're no longer hearing the tones you're no longer putting on that uniform you're no longer responding in the vehicle and being part of that mission. Uh, yeah, it's a huge, huge thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's, yeah. um, and challenge. I tell people too, that no matter, I tell first responders and I talk about this on my show a lot is the majority of people out there, I would say the vast majority of Americans, maybe I'm just naive support first responders. Because I think that plays into a big part into the mental health. It depends part challenges. of the country. Yeah, it, it depends on the part of the country. Yeah. But I think there's there's that silent majority of people that want to speak up and want to say, look, I support fire or I support EMS or I support our vets. I support Leo's. But they're afraid to do so. Um, but I think the vast majority of people still maybe I'm just ignorant. Maybe maybe I'm just naive. But I, I think the vast majority of people out there for, still support law enforcement. They're just afraid to be vocal about it. And, and you, but you're right. 
Stacey. It depends on where you're at in the country. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the, you know, the, the racial issues and yeah. the, you know, the excessive use of force that, you know, it's really just a, a very small percentage, you know, of uh, police officers that have um, behaved in that way. Yeah. And it, I, and I, it really and it, leaves a bad, you know, it, it, it leaves a bad mark on law enforcement for everyone. And, yeah. and that's unfortunate, but uh well, I'd now like with social think. media and stuff like that, now we didn't, you know, when I was a young cop and Dave, when you were a young fireman, we didn't have any of that stuff. We had, we had our issues, but now you're just bombarded you know, from, from all different sides with social media. Now, you know, everybody just chiming in. I'm sorry, Stacey, didn't mean to interrupt. No, it's okay. It's okay. And, and the other thing is with law enforcement, I mean, they are the disciplinarians, right? And so you're going to get, you know, anybody that has an issue with authority, you know, maybe they had a a father that was a little too punitive or whatever you know so it's just immediately if if a, a police officer shows up there's automatically that digging in their heels and uh you know you're not going to teach me uh type attitude whereas you know firefight everybody loves a firefight yeah, everybody loves the fire guys <laughs> so, and the fire uh, women everybody, the i know part. i never see any bad posts about firemen no and, no you, you don't know. see videos you know with of firefighters you know where they're saying they're like, oh, and look at what this firefighter did you know it's usually it's the tail yeah. end of you know it's the police reaction yeah. to a civilian uh, breaking the law or doing something that then got the police officer to put go hands on. Right. Yep. And, but what you don't see is what the civilian did necessarily. You see, you know, you see the handcuffs, you see the, you know, the suspect being put to the ground face down and it, you know, in the videos that get posted. And so it looks like, oh, here's another police officer roughing up yeah. an honest civilian. But, but you're right. You're, you're right. It's, it's a very small percentage. Stacey. I mean, think of how many people we got in this country, about 350 million or something like that. <laughs> how many calls for service do law enforcement officers go on every day? Probably hundreds of thousands, thousands, who knows, maybe millions. Now, how many of those result in a use of force? Very yeah. small percentage. Right, right. right. Putting the microscope on microscope and Correct. blowing it up so much bigger than exactly. it is. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's just a matter of people, you know, educating themselves uh, a little bit more. Do officers and firefighters and first responders make mistakes? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're people, we're humans, we make mistakes. But yeah, we we also have that responsibility, like you said, you know, Stacy, we we could we have the power to detain and all this other stuff, take your rights, you know, and God forbid have to use some sort of lethal force. Right. So we need to be under the microscope, but it's so not most officers are well trained. Yeah, and most know officers how to use are well that without hurting someone. It's yeah. just what gets advertised or highlighted. Well, that's what sells. That's what sells. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you both are amazing, David Dassinger and Dr. Stacy Raymond. If people want to reach out to you both, I feel like we could talk all day about different things. Uh, if people want to reach out to you both, David, where where can they find you? And Stacy too. David, go ahead. Thanks, Patrick. Um, well, the website for a podcast is probably the best place. It's called respondertv.com. And email is info at respondertv.com. Um, and if you send something there, it'll get to uh, myself, Stacy, or Bonnie Rumley, our co-host. I appreciate it, David. What about you, Dr. Raymond? All right. So this you might have to write this down because it's very difficult to wrap your mind around. It's drstacyraymond.com. Hold on. Website. Hold on. <laughs> write that down. Can you say the first part again? <laughs> so it's actually, yeah, it's doctor with dr, and there's no e in my name. So as long and I'm as I'm sorry, I was calling right, you Stacy. Should I have been calling you doctor? No, I, I don't. You know, I 
feel more comfortable if you call me Stacy. So it's so funny. You talk to some clinicians and they're like, I'm a doctor. Yeah, yeah. And then but, other people know, are like, Yeah, e- Stacy. It's yeah, an ego thing. That's yeah, an ego thing. <laughs> Everything will be linked up in the show notes. So thank you so much for your service, what you're doing right now for our brave men and women who serve. You're welcome back anytime. God bless you both. Thanks, Thank Patrick. You. It's been great speaking with you and I look forward to having some more conversations with you. Thanks, sir. All right. Thank you, Patrick. I enjoy Thank your you. podcast. Bye-bye. Thank you again for tuning into the show. If you love the audio podcast, check out my YouTube channel at CJ Evolution Podcast. Please take care of yourself. Until next time.